0: the world around us however it is at any point God we look to you as our trust we put our trust in you we put our hope in you God you're the only one who is on solid ground you set us on solid ground when all around us is sinking sand we can trust and we can hope in you and your name and your grace God we worship you this morning I pray Today's passage is Exodus 20, verses 18 through 24, although what I'll be preaching on will be sort of spread out over a large swath of text. Let me read the, the scripture reading. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. This is the word of the Lord. you join me briefly in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, let your spirit um, speak this morning, Lord. Uh, we we uh, respond to you as um, the young Samuel did when, when he said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And Lord, I pray that your word would work in us, that we might respond to your word as Mary did to the angel Gabriel. Let it be to me according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here at Trinity, you'll often hear me talk about how humanity's purpose, our reason for being, is to bring glory to God and life to the world. Glory to God and life to the world. So as humans, we have a vertical posture. In other words, everything we do is, is meant to be to the glory of God. So it's a vertical posture and then a horizontal posture. If, if we're truly seeking the glory of God, then we will inevitably seek the good of others around us and the good of the Lord's creation. So we look for the glory of God and therefore for the life of the world. Last week, we got introduced to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments might be the most well known law document in the Western world. And we talked about how law folks have often summarized the Ten Commandments in terms of sort of the, the quote unquote two tablets. So the, the tablet of love God and love people. And this is sort of how Jesus summarized the law as well that all the law and the prophets hang on the commandments love God and love your neighbor. Glory to God and life to the world. Love God. Love people. So, for these next two weeks, what we're going to be doing is looking at what's called the Book of the Covenant. So, we're reading through the Book of Exodus, and here are, here's the nation of Israel the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is making them into His people. And so he lays out this Book of the Covenant, which is sort of like a constitution. It's the constitution of this new nation of Israel. And what we're going to see is that the the principles of the Ten Commandments, love God and love people, are sort of worked out through the Book of the Covenant. And so this week we're focusing on the laws that have to do with loving God, so the laws around worship, and then next week we'll be focusing on laws having to do with loving people, uh, Israel's responsibility to, to their neighbor and what we what we learn from that? So, we're talking about laws here, but right from the outset, there might be some confusion about why there would be any laws about loving God at all. That, that was actually not a common thing in the ancient Near Eastern world. So, in the ancient Near East, the, the, the setting in, in which uh, the law was given to Israel most law codes did not include religious elements. There might be sort of like a tip of the hat to whatever was the favored god of the king, but there wasn't a whole lot of legislating around worship. Hammurabi probably wrote the the, the, the most influential law code of the time, and I, I don't know that there's, there's any laws around worship in the law code of Hammurabi. Nehum Sarna is a well-known a uh, Jewish scholar who studies the ancient Near East, and he, he points out that that Israel might actually stand alone when it comes to having a law like this, where laws about worship are interweaving right along with laws around your responsibility to other people. Israel may stand alone as the only nation that had a non-secular law. So here, I, by secular, I just mean making no reference to anything religious. So in the the United States, it's easy for this idea to to rub us the wrong way as well. This whole idea of of having a law commanding people's worship and commanding the way they're going to worship, we kind of like the separation of church and state. So we, we think of the church and the state in terms of two separate jurisdictions. You have churches, gatherings of of believers or assemblies of believers, organizations, and they shouldn't take the state, right, and mandate their particular moral itch. We're against that. And the state shouldn't be able to tell gatherings of believers what to believe or how to practice their faith, provided they're not hurting anybody. So, And that's great as far as it goes, right? If done right, it means that nobody can walk into Congress and pass a law just because their particular religion tells them It's the right law to pass. And uh, going the other direction, it should mean that the state keeps out of the business of faith. And that's all fine. But over time, something has taken place in our culture where we've actually begun to reimagine the proper place for God. So we've started, for one thing, to imagine that God has no place in the public sphere, which was absolutely not the intention originally of the separation of church and state. I mean, the, the famous letter by Thomas Jefferson on separation of church and state is written by the same God who penned all those beautiful uh, sentiments in the Declaration of Independence about these rights being sort of God given. So clearly, the intention was not to completely remove uh, uh, issues of faith from the public sphere, that's neither here nor there. What, what's happened culturally is that we've begun to privatize God. So in the same way that we've sort of separated church and state, we've separated God into this particular compartment of life, right? We've privatized God. Uh, God is sort of a lifestyle choice, right? Like, I obey God, and I take my eggs scrambled, right? It, it's sort of on that level, almost, in terms of this is, a, this is just something that You know, God is sort of uh, an interesting curiosity that I keep in a cupboard and, uh, I generally don't take it out that often unless there's a guest over that uh, might get a kick out of it, right? So that's sort of what we've, what we've done. We've privatized God. And in fact, it's gotten to the point where if someone does live a, a, a life, uh, an all of life devotion to God, there's sort of this cultural perception that they've been compromised, right? They've been compromised intellectually or they've been compromised professionally, right? So the dogma lives loudly in them, right? Which is the the, the line that Senator Feinstein sort of tut-tutted in the direction of Amy Coney Barrett at her uh, hearings. Despite the fact that Barrett was called by the American Bar Association, she was described as an intellectual giant, but, there's the, but I think it was, it was an interesting illustration of the way that when someone lives this all-of-life devotion to God, Barrett's part of a religious order, when, when someone lives that kind of all-of-life posture toward God, there's this perception that they've been compromised professionally, they've been compromised intellectually. We've come to think that people become impaired by anything more than just a sampling Of God, I take a glass of wine with dinner, but no more, right? Because I'd become inebriated. We're applying the same sort of principle to the Lord. So the wisdom of the separation of church and state aside, and I do think it's wise. In fact, it was a Christian idea. Uh, We've made God into this privatized entity. So what I'm trying to point out is that this principle of government has bled into our whole culture, into our lives, so that we actually begin to think that it's the norm when it's not. The separation of church and state can actually be thought of as a placeholder. The separation of church and state is a placeholder for these years in which the reign of Christ is disputed among the nations. Jesus has died, risen, he has taken his throne, he has sent his church into the world to announce his kingdom. And during these years in which the church is going out to announce the kingdom, the separation of church and state is this way where we can mutually respect each other's humanity, where the tensions of state and the tensions of a pluralistic nation can sort of be worked out, where we can move freely in our culture. The separation of church and state makes that possible, but only as a placeholder for the years in which Christ's reign is still being applied to all the earth. So it's not a fixture, and our lives should not look like our government we separate church and state. We don't separate God and life. So what's necessary to live by God's law is not necessarily the same thing that's, that, that's necessary to live by human law. What's necessary to live by God's law is not the same thing as what's necessary to live by human law. So what I'm trying to say is that you can be a law-abiding citizen and not be holy. You can be a law-abiding citizen. You can you know, pay your taxes. You can... Uh, be a responsible voter, right? Like looking up policies and results of policies and then casting your vote. You can go the speed limit. You can not tag dumpsters and murder people. And you will be successfully a law-abiding citizen, but you will not embody yet the law of God. You can be law-abiding, but not holy, in the law that God gives to Israel, he's not out just to keep violence to a minimum. He's, he's giving them this expression of what it is to be human, what humans were actually made to be. The law of God is a reflection of his character. He's instructing Israel in what it, it will look like for them to live under the rule of God. And so he's going to tell them to worship as well as tell them to love others. God is inviting his people into the way of the heavenly city. He's inviting his people into the way that humans were meant to live. And so if the law is, is supposed to be this reflection of how people were meant to live, then it's going to reflect the fact that we were made for God. We were made for God. And so when God gives his people instruction in how to live, he's going to instruct them to live for God. So here at Trinity, we 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 summarize what worship is by saying that worship involves all of God, all of life, and all of us. All of God, all of life, all of us. We worship God for all that he reveals himself to be. We worship God not just with songs on Sunday, but with all of our life and our work and our relationships. We worship God not as isolated individuals, but as a people. All of God, all of life, all of us. That's what the law of the Lord calls us to do. And we're going to see some of those principles working out today. So what I want to do now is I want to start working through some of the laws in the book of the covenant, uh, some of the laws that Israel has given for their worship. And, you know, most of the, the worship related laws are in the book of Leviticus. There's not actually that many in the book of Exodus. Uh, next week, I have the very challenging task of trying to summarize all the ethical laws in the book of Exodus, which is going to be tough. But uh, this morning, what I'm basically going to do is I'll, I'll touch on the, these, these few passages that that are expressly about worship. And what I want to do is point out four principles that come through, four principles Uh, For our worship. And now these were, these are principles that were meant to be embodied in, in Israel's life, but they are just as much principles of worship that ought to be embodied in the life of Trinity Community Church. These are principles about what it is to be a worshiper in the first place. And so that's why I want us to be approaching these this morning, is looking to these laws to see what does the Lord expect of us? when it comes to worship. So I'll be moving relatively quickly through each of these. The first one might take a little bit longer, but uh, basically just want to point out these four principles. So the first principle, God will be our highest good. God will be our highest good. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint just one verse for this principle because it's sort of the working assumption behind all of them. But one place you see it is, is in the passage I read this morning where God is instructing Israel that they will not craft for themselves gods of silver or gods of gold. And there's this interesting little phrase where he says, you, you won't craft any gods to be with me. To be with me. So, in other words, God will not share. God will not share. So in the ancient world, what you'd often have is you'd have a, a group of people who, they might be worshippers of Yahweh, right? Worshippers of the God of Israel. And yet, they, they would sort of hedge their bets. So that would be their their main guy, right? Uh, but then they would also say, you know what, though? I, I really, really want my crops to do well uh, this year. And I could really use a couple extra hands on the farm. It would be great if wifey uh, got pregnant. So I'm also going to approach, uh, approach Asherah, the goddess Asherah, under the terebinth tree and plead with her for fertility. Or, you know, man, it's been sort of a drought. I would really like to see a, a raging thunderstorm, so I'm going to offer to Baal some sort of a sacrifice. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not you know, just going to follow Baal. I'm still, I'm still Yahweh's guy, but I'm just sort of hedging my bets, right? I'm just making sure, just in case he doesn't come through, maybe Baal will. There's this sort of idea that that you could hedge your bets. So you'd have it in Israel where even, you know, even while the nation is is still proclaiming itself to be Yahweh's people. They would have household gods even, these domesticated idols that, that would be kept in their, in their homes, these little idols that they would also be worshipping. This, this, this sort of idea of, of hedging your bets. And God does not accept that. God doesn't share. And the reason why God doesn't share is because God isn't a liar. When we turn to anything else... To supplement what only God can do, that is idolatry. When we turn to anything else to supplement what only God can do, that is idolatry. God is the transcendent one, He is the one who is above all else, He is the source of all things, He is the creator. And so we cannot turn to anything else as though it is that. Israel could not turn to Asherah because Asherah was not their creator. Asherah was not real. God is not a liar, and so he will not share with counterfeits. So this is sort of a way that I've started thinking about this and sort of talking about this. We we all have freight, right? We all have a kind of freight, there's a freight of hope. We're, we're looking to, to, for something to carry this freight of, of what's going to be our hope, our meaning, our security, our value. We're looking for something that can hold all the weight of this freight. But anything else that we put this freight onto is going to be crushed by it, right? So when we try to find our ultimate meaning and our ultimate security and our ultimate value and our ultimate hope, all of these things, we try to find that. And anything other than God, it's like putting one of those giant cargo boxes onto a John boat and seeing it sink into the river, right? It cannot hold the freight. What we need is a barge. What we need is an unsinkable, one of those things that you see on the Mississippi, right? We need a barge to carry the freight. Nothing else is going to work. Nothing else is equipped to carry it. Only the Lord. So nowadays, I think there are a lot of options of things to live for. And what I mean by that is we we tend to be looking for things that will make life, quote-unquote, worth living, by which we mean a certain quality of life. A certain quality of life. Man, like, if I could just have... One acre of land, right? Just to have like a hobby farm, then man, would my life be worth living, right? Like if I could just have that particular person, then man, my life would be worth living. And sometimes it's even pettier. We're constantly looking for something that will make life feel full. And there are tons of options. Marketers have been well trained, even. Schooled, carrying degrees in ways to make us desire things that will make life worth living to us. There are just as many idols now as in the ancient world. One of the great reformers, uh, John Calvin, whose theology is very influential on the elders here, he, he once described humans as factories for idols. So we're very good at finding new things to live for, new things to devote ourselves to in the way that we should only devote ourselves to God. And a big part of the reason why it is because we can worship our idols on our terms. Idols tend to be manageable. I mentioned earlier those household gods. Think about what was actually happening there when the Israelites would worship household gods. They were literally taking a deity, something that was like ostensibly a deity, supposed to be a deity, and they were domesticating it, right? In fact, that was the attraction. The attraction is that I can take. This Asherah fertility statue, and I can put it on my hearth, right? It, it looks very good on the mantle next to the, the, you know, succulent plant and whatever seasonal decoration I have right now. It's fall. So, you know, so it looks great up there. The, the whole attraction was that they could domesticate those gods, but they couldn't domesticate Yahweh. You can domesticate idols, But we can't truly domesticate God. And yet we often try, right? Because we know that we can't literally have other idols. And so we, we, we search for these things that will make life worth living. These things that we can sort of control, these things that we can sort of manage, while also feeling like we're living for something bigger than ourselves because we are intimidated by what it actually is to follow God. And sometimes we try to domesticate God. So I think one of the biggest obstacles to maturity in Christ in our culture is the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel. It's a domesticated gospel. So think about, you might have heard the gospel preached in this way. And so what I'm about to do, I'm going to say something in very strong terms, and then I'm going to walk it back a little bit, and then... Arrive at where we ought to be. So, at first, I'm going to say something that might seem like I'm not sure you want to die on that hill, Mike. But just let me explain. All right. So, you might have heard the gospel preached this way. So, you have some kind of distress. You have some kind of distress. Um, let's say anger. You're an angry person. So, Jesus died for you. You're you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sin. Now you're completely forgiven. There now, how do you feel? Well, it's like, take this gospel and call me in the morning. It's, it's this way in which the gospel is preached to manage emotion. It's the gospel as therapy. Now, here's where I walk it back. The gospel absolutely is big enough to speak to our emotions. If, if you are an angry person and you walk into my office to talk to me about your anger, I will preach the gospel to you. Right? So I'm not saying that the gospel has, has no relevance to our emotion. What I am trying to point out is that we have reduced the gospel to a therapy. We've reduced the gospel to this thing that we, that we preach to sort of make ourselves feel better. We've made the gospel into this thing that's a life enhancement strategy. Here's the gospel, now isn't your life worth living? And Of course the gospel makes life worth living but we've reduced it to just that. We are not short of things to live for in our culture. We're short of things to die for. We're not short of things to live for. We're short of things to die for. The gospel isn't good news because right here and now you're going to feel better being in Christ. That's not why it's good news. It's good news because the God of the universe, the transcendent God, has invited us to participate in his life. He has invited us under his rule. He has invited us to take part in the rolling out of his kingdom. And all things will be made new. But I have known many Christians who, upon following Jesus, experience darkness in their life. Trial. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, literally lists his anxiety for the churches as one of his sufferings. We all are against the prosperity gospel, but sometimes we're not as discerning about where it's showing up now. God is offering us transcendence. He's offering us not only something to live for, but something to die for. That even if we had to stare down the barrel of a life of trial as a result of following Jesus, we could could come to the end of that life, a life of trial, and say, gain. It was all worth it. That's why the gospel is good news, because it is such good news that we could face a life of trial and still say, gain. So, God will be our highest good. When God is our highest good, when we are living for His glory, that's when you discover Christian courage that's when you discover Christian joy. That's when you discover Christian laughter and Christian feasting, all of it. Because the thing of greatest value, the thing capable of carrying that freight, he is ours in Christ. God will be our highest good. So that's the first principle. So the second principle is God will be thanked in all we do. So I want to uh, read... uh, Uh, a, a couple laws real fast and then comment on them. So this is in chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother on the eighth day. You shall give it to me. Then, just briefly, I want to flag down uh, chapter twenty three verse nine The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. so these are describing a festival that gets uh, described more in detail elsewhere, but essentially what what Israel had in place were a, a couple different uh, rituals where they would offer to God. The first of something, right? So the first fruits and the firstborn. They'd offer to God the first fruits and the firstborn. So anytime a firstborn son was born into a family, the father would take that child to the priest, show that child to the priest, and they would they would rehearse this uh, this ritual where the the priest would essentially prompt the father and say, right, "Will you redeem this child?" The the father would say, "Yeah, I'm going to redeem this child." They'd sacrifice an animal in its place. And then anytime time uh, a, a firstborn animal was born, they would sacrifice it. Something similar would happen with their first fruits. The first fruits are sort of the, the first of your harvest. You know, the harvest doesn't all come all at once. Some things grow earlier than others. And so when those first fruits would come forth, a bunch of them would be offered up. And it was sort of this, this both of these things were, were signs of Signs meant to remind Israel that everything we have, we have from the Lord. So they were invited to see all of life as as grace. All of life as a theater for grace, where God is bestowing his gifts on his people, where God is a good father that we can trust. It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus tells us to look at the birds of the air who uh, who... You know, do not farm, and yet their Father in heaven feeds them. The grass of the field, they do not spin or sow, and yet they are dressed better than Solomon in all his glory. It's this idea that our Father in heaven loves us, and he is providing for us. And so we we have these habits of acknowledging his grace. Israel had these rituals of acknowledging God's grace. And so now, as Christians, we will thank God in all that we have. We will see everything that we have, every good and perfect gift as coming from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no change or shifting shadow. All things, all good things come from the Lord. So just as we, we live all of life for God's glory, we live all of life alert to his grace. Alert to God's grace in all things. So God will be thanked in all that we have. Uh, The third principle is that God's work will order our lives. So specifically what I'm talking about here is God's redemptive work, God's work to save, will order our lives. So what's fascinating is to realize that, that throughout the year, Israel would keep a number of festivals. I'll read this brief passage. It says, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You'll keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering. At the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year, shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So what was going on with these festivals is each one of them was meant to remind Israel of something God had done for them. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is the most obvious, where they were instructed to to make bread for themselves. You're not going to have time to let it leaven. God's going to save them out of Egypt, so they made unleavened bread, and then, of course, God redeemed them and they had to run. So at a certain point in the year, they bake unleavened bread to, to retell, to rehearse the story of God's redemption for them. So in our Christian practice, we also rehearse the news of the gospel. A new king has been enthroned, and so the world must be informed, and, and we must be steeped in this gospel. So a couple of ways that we do this, uh, one obvious way is every single week, you know, before we approach the table for communion, we have the gospel announced to us. And I know it kind of feels like it's a second sermon. <laughs> Because it is. It basically is. I mean, it is a second sermon, but not every passage is about the gospel. And so we want the preachers who preach to, to be able to focus on the text, do their work. And we also want it so that every single week the gospel is announced to us. And so before communion, the gospel is re announced to us. We rehearse the gospel by taking bread to symbolize Christ's broken body and. And juice to symbolize his shed blood, and we rehearse the gospel. Other ways we do this, though, is even just through the practice of Advent and, and Christmas and Good Friday and Easter, rehearsing the gospel through the year. But actually, I think it goes even farther than this. This has to make it into our homes. We have to be a people who preach the gospel to ourselves and to our families and to our friends. The gospel has to be sort of the aroma around our relationships, and so if if you're a family, a couple with or without kids, rehearse the gospel together by reading the scriptures together, by by reminding each other of God's grace, by being reliable when it comes to pointing each other back to our Savior. With your friend groups. Let this be something that, that shows up in, in how you act as a good friend. You are a good friend if you remind your friends of the gospel and call them to obedience in, in faith. And so we will order our lives by the gospel, by the work of God, for our sake. So the final principle, the fourth principle, God's mission will be our mission so it's interesting in in the book of the covenant. There's also a long section. I'm not going to read. I'm not going to read just because it is pretty long. But there's there's a section that has to do with when Israel will will finally make it into the promised land. And they're instructed that when they get into the promised land, they need to topple the idols of the inher- of, of the former people that lived there. Right. So th- there's this instruction to rout the land, to empty the land of Of all idolatry. It's a really interesting command. Religion can be privatized from the state in the sense that it can be kept at or or removed from government, but it cannot be privatized for us as a people. Worship must sum up everything we do, even our mission. The mission that we are taking part in as God's people uh, is is a mission of seeing others worship the true God. So John Piper once said that mission exists because worship doesn't. So the point of mission is not church attendance. It's worship. And so I want to introduce sort of a characteristic of, of this mission that's easy to forget. We, When we t- think about the, the mission that we're on with the Lord, we often think just in terms of announcing the gospel. And of course, that's like the core of it, right? The, the essential bit. But as we seek to do that with our neighbors and 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 whatever, there's this other side of it which I think has to do with exposing the idols. Exposing the idols for what they are. Exposing the idolatry that that our friends and our neighbors have given themselves up to. Exposing the idolatry in our own lives so that our lives sort of uh, become this uh, counter example. In order for Christ to be enthroned in the lives of our families and the lives of our neighbors, there can't be any pretenders to the throne. So part of what we do is gently expose the idols, sometimes boldly, expose the idols in in people's lives. I think a a way that 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 looks is um, as somebody is speaking to you, let's say there's there's somebody who's speaking to you about... um, just a sense of alienation, a sense of, um, of being dissatisfied in life, and yet you know, because you know this friend very well, that they have a long-standing addiction to pornography, right? Or to something else. I think that, that it would be a Christian and, and missional thing to do to point out to them, hey, as long as that stands in your life, you, you will be hopeless to fix these other problems. I think part of the role that we play in our society is exposing the idols for what they are and even toppling them. And we can tackle that from different angles, but our mission is to, is to announce the kingship of Christ, which means also pointing out any pretenders to the throne. So God will be our highest good, God will be thanked in all that we have, God's work will order our lives, and God's mission will be our mission. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would shape Trinity Community Church into a worshiping community, a community that worships as you have called us to, that you would be our highest good, that we would be alert to your grace in our lives, that we would be a, a people shaped and formed by the gospel. And also, Lord, I pray that we would be diligent to uh, to expose the idols in the world. Starting first with us. Lord, I pray that we would um, extricate our household gods. That we would not craft any other gods to be with you, but that you would stand alone in our hearts. Lord, we love you and we pray that your spirit would apply the word to us today. Amen.